Can she heal them? said I to the fox. Did she heal you? It is possible, said the fox. It might be in accordance with nature that some hands can heal. Who knows? Let me go out, said Psyche. They are our people. Our rump, said my father. They shall smart for this day's work if ever I get the whip hand of them again. But quick, dress the girl. She has beauty enough, that's one thing. And spirit. They put a queen's dress on her and a chaplet on her head and opened the door. You know how it is when you shed few tears or none, but there is a weight and pressure of weeping through your whole head. It is like that with me even now when I remember her going out, slim and straight as a scepter, out of the darkness and cool of the hall into the hot, pestilential glare of that day. The people drew back, thrusting one another the moment the doors opened. I think they expected a rush of spearmen, but a minute later the wailing and shouting died utterly away. Every man, and many a woman too, in that crowd was kneeling. Her beauty, which most of them had never seen, worked on them as a terror might work. Then a low murmur, almost a sob, began swelled, broke into the gasping cry, a goddess, a goddess. One woman's voice rang out clear, it is Ungit herself in mortal shape. Psyche went on, walking slowly and gravely, like a child going to say a lesson right in among all the foulness. She touched and she touched. They fell at her feet and kissed her feet and the edge of her robe and her shadow and the ground where she had trodden. And still she touched and touched. There seemed to be no end of it. The crowd increased instead of diminishing. For hours she touched. The air was stifling, even for us who stood in the shadow of the porch. The whole earth and air ached for the thunderstorm, which we knew now would not come. I saw her growing paler and paler. Her walk had become a stagger. King, said I, it will kill her. Then more's the pity, said the king. They'll kill us all if she stops. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. was a reading from the third chapter of Till We Have Faces, um, the novel we are exploring. Um, the, the last work we'll be exploring in this first season of the Inklings Variety Hour. With me is my co-host, Annika Smith. Um, Megan Logston was not able to make it um, this week just because of obligations related to her studies. But uh, we are soldiering on, much like Psyche under the burden of the plague-ridden crowd and gloom. <laughs> but um, you know, we will not be 
will not I, be destroyed. That is not, yeah, not an appropriate simile at all. Wow. Oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, uh, so um, I am uh, Chris Pipkin, uh, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia. And, uh, and who are you? I'm Annika Smith, and I live in New Jersey. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. Doing, doing lawyerly things in New Jersey. Uh, uh, something, something like, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that is a uh, powerful passage you read at the beginning. What caused you to choose that? Um, it being a moment of, of crisis for everyone involved. Gloam is um, experiencing a plague and the people have heard a story that the princess has hands that can heal. She nursed the fox and the fox recovered and the story got around about it. And because of her beauty, they've also wondered maybe she has power um, that some hands could heal. They demand it. They say, send her out with her healing hands. We die healing, healing, healing. Um, They demand something from their king, uh, some sort of comfort. And so they send her out Um, and she's, she's willing. And I, I love, I mean, this is going to come up uh, again um, in later sacrifice, right, with, with Psyche, but her willingness to go and her desire to serve her people and her identity with them. And it's, it's like a, a, a good foreshadowing of that ultimate self-giving. And it's also interesting, this is the first time I read it and saw her as a Christ figure, um, just in the going in right among all the foulness with her beauty, um, and touching and touching. And that really, and it might be because, you know, here we are in the middle of the socially distanced pandemic, um, but having someone going into foulness and touching everyone most foul and her touch being that uh, very Emmanuel um, sort of fleshly presence that brought healing or that they thought might bring healing. I think also the mystery of, Orwell's, uh, the narrator's sort of wonder, could she heal? Like, is this a real thing? Are miracles happening? Or is this just a natural um, occurrence or a a coincidence? And so she asks the fox, you know, the the philosopher, well, did she she heal you? Is such a thing possible? And he's basically agnostic, which is also surprising. It's not one way or the other, like, oh, yeah, she totally miraculously healed me. Or, well, no, it's just I recovered in the natural course of things. It's, you know, maybe it might be in accordance with nature that some hands have the power to heal. Some hands can heal. Um, And I I find that mysterious and also surprising, given given the fox's sort of... um, skepticism of say unget or religion in general throughout the story so there's just a lot going on that um yeah and even the 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 king and his his willingness to just send her out uh in his desperation but also his admiration of psyche right like he sees that she has courage he sees that she has spirit and and maybe just maybe it will save the kingdom yeah there's so much there
just to just to back up just a moment i forgot to do this um we are we are going through till we have faces um which is uh c.s lewis's great novel retelling of the cupid and psyche myth this is a um a reimagining of what the story of cupid and psyche might have originally been like um uh, and it takes place in a little kingdom somewhere near-ish to Greece. Um, we don't know exactly where. Um, my mm-hmm. guess is like further east, but I don't know. We have the uh, story of a lonely, disfigured girl named Oriol, um, who is uh, a princess in this country, um, in this little sort of backwater country, you know, slowly... Uh, making friends and understanding the world around her, um, making friends particularly with her uh, schoolmaster, her tutor, the fox, um, who's a who's a Greek slave, and then um, finally her greatest friend, at least at least to her, is her youngest sister, um, the the third princess, who's uh, who's called in Glomish Istra, uh, but in Greek Psyche. Um, and who is almost sort of supernaturally beautiful. Um, And I wonder Mm -hmm. if part of the reason that the Fox's skepticism is suspended a little bit, um, or at least his sort of um, pragmatic, I don't know that I'd call it materialism, but just just tendency to be very rational about everything um, or, or desire to be rational about everything anyway if that's not suspended just a little bit um, when he sees Psyche and when he sees her um, act the way that she is, because she's not, of course, not only beautiful uh, physically, but she's also beautiful spiritually. Um, She's, um, you know, kind of displays every type of virtue as it's, as it's called for seems almost, you know, like, like you were saying, um, Christ-like, except unlike Christ, she does have beauty that we would desire her. Right, right. Um, she is uh, and her beautiful beauty in body is, and soul. It's very. It is. I think as you're talking about the the fox's response in particular, I am just reminded back in the last chapter when he he talks about her beauty being in accord with nature. That it's it's sort of like the fulfillment of nature, and it doesn't overwhelm you it just seems all exactly as it should be about her and when she dances that's when he he claps and he sings prettier than andromeda prettier than helen prettier than aphrodite herself um and then he he attributes that's when of course orwell is freaked out and superstitious and like no no you shouldn't um tempt the gods that way and he says, ah, oh, it's your words that are ill-omened. The divine nature is not like that. It has no envy. But his conception of the gods being not these jealous deities of gloam, but these abstract, almost like first principles or, or natural, um, what we can see working out in nature and in the laws of nature, right? The divine mm-hmm. nature that doesn't have envy, uh, Maybe it's too impersonal versus the the vision of Ungit, the the terrible and the very very jealous, um, yeah. which is again just an interesting sort of perspective to set up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember somewhere um, C.S. Lewis. I don't remember if it's in Mere Christianity, 
if it's uh, in Surprised by Joy or something else, um, but but C.S. Lewis writes about different types of religions and exploring different types of religions in that, you know, some seemed, you know, thick like stew, right? Um, and then mm-hmm. some seemed clear and thin like you know, soup that you can like translucent soup, right. That you can sort of see through and only Christianity to him had, um, had both like, kind of like homogeneously mixed together. Right. Um, like he, he was saying, well, you know, Buddhism, you know, has, has both elements where you have this kind of philosophical rational element to it, but then also this like very thick, deep, um, inscrutable, uh, folk element to it as as well that's like more more mysterious um and uh um mm-hmm. he, he's kind of um saying that um you know christianity kind of kind of has both um aspects it has mystery and it also has clarity leave it to an early 20th century british dude to be like religion is soup <laughs> yep yep um, also leave it to C.S. Lewis. Another reason I love that, that passage, um, is I think that's one of the first times in the book we get what to me is a familiar Lewisism, um, when he directs it to the second person as the narrator, he's, he's in full Orwell mode, like describing this thing happening with Psyche. And then he says, you know how it is when you shed few tears or none, but there's weight, like, like the, the address to the reader of remember that one time or if you've ever pulled a scab or if you've ever <laughs> that happens so often in the chronicles of narnia um mm-hmm. but in this sort of higher mode of storytelling uh has, has hasn't been happening as much and i i like that at this what for the narrator is this moment of i think painful and poignant remembrance and also great uh, like she still rejoices in um, Psyche's beauty and Psyche's glory in some sense, um, even though it it's her eventual downfall that Psyche is then, um, sorry, not Psyche, Orwell is then directing the reader in the same way. Like you should feel what, in order to feel what I'm feeling, just imagine that sense in your throat, that sense in your head, that pressure. And there's a, there's a C.S. Lewis poem. He's really good with, with tears um, without it all being maudlin. Mm. Uh, he, he has this short line in a poem. Um, uh, Love's as warm as tears. Love is tears. Pressure at um, tension in the brain, pressure at the throat. Deluge weeks of rain making haystacks float. Uh, and it, it goes on, but it's um, his linking of great love and tears, not necessarily of sorrow, but that sort of threat of deep pain, yeah. I think is really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, I'm sure he knew something of tears, even though he's British. Um, <laughs> uh, and we, I think we even talked about um, when we did the Lion, Lich, in the Wardrobe, his sort of aside to, um, you know, to the reader about, uh, I think it was like Lucy and then 
like you know there if, for those of you that had cri- that have cried you know um all night you know that yes uh, there's yeah. a certain point at which and i forget what happens at that point but um but yeah yeah well the the tears end and you're you're feeling empty i think it's uh, right after okay. aslan has been killed yeah and you feel like nothing um, so is ever going to happen uh, again yeah sorry yeah so there's something like deep I mean, I guess, you know, he's writing Linus in Wardrobe not not too long before he writes um, uh, Till We Have Faces. So maybe there's just something, um, yeah, some some sort of stylistic um, choice that he's that he's making to like address the reader directly in a in a time of uh, crying um, or, or where, where he's talking about the leading person crying but yeah that's that was a really um i think that's really interesting uh insight at the end of chapter two everything was all sunshine and roses and happy there were maybe a few storm clouds looming on the horizon as you know the fox compared uh psyche to aphrodite um but um you know for for the most part you know <laughs> these were the happiest days that Oriol had ever known and of course it was Oriol's bratty second sister not psyche but the one that she doesn't like uh Redival, who ended the good time she uh apparently had been uh up to no good with a young officer of the guard named Tyrion King heard about it and uh, and came and surprised them, made Terran into a eunuch right there, and then forced Redival on uh, the, until then, happy trio of Psyche, the fox, and Oriol. And, uh, you know, says, Fox, if she loses her maidenhead before I find her a husband, you'll yell louder for it than she. Look to your hide. And you, goblin daughter, do what you're good for, you best. Name of Ungood. If you with that face can't frighten the men away, it's a wonder. So Redival ends up spending time with them and ends up um, especially kind of tattling on Psyche when people come up to Psyche and do things like give her offerings, right, to make their children beautiful. Right. This woman with a child uh, asked me to kiss her. Ah, but why? Because, because she said her baby would be beautiful if I did. Because you were so beautiful yourself. Don't forget that. She said that. I love how, yeah, yeah. Redival is really bratty, mm-hmm. um, but in such a believable way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's petty, but so, so real. And even the way she tries to um, disconcert the fox by rolling around and showing her legs uh, just because he's modest and it bothers him. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah. These details are so good. Yeah, yeah. It says things like, hey ho, a stepsister for a goddess and a slave for counselor. Who'd be a princess in Gloom? What <laughs> a new goddess. Um, uh, the fortunes of Gloom kind of uh, get worse, partly to do with Terran, uh, because her father gelded Terran. Um, but um, his mm-hmm. Terran's father talked to, and, and I think the father, like, um, uh, the the king. I mean, um, did he sell Terran off as a eunuch to another land, to like the king of Fars or something like that? Is that yes? And then his, but so we don't. Re- it's not really that Terran is getting the revenge, but it's Terran's family um, mm-hmm. made common cause with with other men 
nine yeah. strong lords, which is very Lord of the Rings, like, woo, mm-hmm. um, uh, writing out. And then I love in just like this little half paragraph, you get um, also Orwell's retrospective wisdom and her analysis of things, right? My father took the field himself, and when I saw him ride out in his armor, I came nearer to loving him than I had been yet. I love that. Uh, mm-hmm. And beat the rebels, but with great slaughter on both parts, and I think more slaughter of the beaten men than was needed. The thing left a stench and a disaffection be- behind it. When all was done, the king was weaker than he had been. And just that sort of like almost affection for her father, like because she values courage and valiance and yeah. great bravery, right? Like that when he yeah. rode out with all his armor, like that's that's the closest I came to loving this really terrible man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um that that she should love like by by natural right. rights and concern if if there were anything. I mean it, it reminds me him. of it yeah. reminds me of it's the same kind of effect that if you ever played sports and there are some kids on your sports team that like we're not the <laughs> best people in the world, you know, and you generally just kind of resented them, you know, mm. but when you'd go out and play sports against the other teams, suddenly right. um, there's just this sense of like, there's this deep sense of admiration all of us, if, mm-hmm. if they're good, right. If they're mm-hmm. good at the sports, but yeah, um, I, I can, I can, totally get how she would have come closer to loving her father you know at, at this moment uh, than than mm-hmm. any other because they're fighting this foreign you know threat um, and he's going out and actually selflessly mm-hmm. fighting for them yeah but she sees how his passion and his lack of wisdom his lack of temperance um, mm-hmm. leads to more problems that it was too much slaughter like he could have yeah defeated them he could have but you know the thing left a stench and it made him weaker and just that i i appreciate that we're already getting her sort of queenly analysis and Mm -hmm. counsel as she examines and evaluates the the failures of her father's reign and the the decline of gloam yeah yeah um yeah there's a bad harvest uh for the second year in a row um uh, the fever begins, the fox gets sick, and that's when her father recruits her to be his counselor in the pillar room. And this is another moment when maybe if she doesn't come to respect her father, um, which she doesn't, she is does become less scared of him. And in the end, he would speak to me, not certainly with love, but friendly, as one man might to another. I learned how desperate his affairs were. No neighboring houses of divine blood and ours cannot lawfully marry into any other would take his daughters or give him theirs. The nobles were muttering about the succession. There were threats of war from every side and no strength to meet any one of them. And, um, and, and just like seeing how really weak her, her father is where before he just always sort mm-hmm. of scared her as a, as a bully. And that's going to become uh, more and more of a theme as, as the book goes on where mm-hmm. she just realized, Oh, he's just, He's just scared. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's a nasty, spiteful person, but he's weak. But um, the psyche nurses nurses the fox back to health. Um, just going back to uh, Orwell and her dad, I, I think it's also interesting um, 
like the, her father's regard for her changing and him coming to hate her less for that time speaking friendly as one man might to another and Orwell's discovery of her value to two men is especially and and in, in relating in this sort of asexual like not as her her ugliness defining her right but her her wisdom and her counsel defining her as um, someone who had something to give and was actually necessary and helpful um, and then getting access to that that information and that sort of comradeship even if it's not friendship there's that fellowship um and commonality that she now gets where like even Redival, who is pretty and who is valued as you know daughters were back then to be bartered and traded in sort of uh planning the succession um she doesn't have that access to their father she doesn't have that value to him in some ways it's really kind of providential, at least for Gloam, that she is ugly, um, mm-hmm. that she is uh, disfigured, uh, whatever it is that's disfiguring her face. Because, yeah, like you're saying, it causes her not to be valued in the traditional way that, um, you know, say, Redival is as, as someone to use to make a match with another kingdom. Right. And also, like, it, it's almost like Psyche is so sort of beyond beautiful that she ends up being used as like a human sacrifice to make peace with God. Right. Um, (laughs) Which which you don't really want either. Um, Beauty does not pay. uh, Yeah, No, it doesn't (laughs) seem to pay uh, for the most part of this. Um, And, and yeah, like, like you're saying um, she's free to discover other gifts um, that, that she has, and especially having been mentored by the Fox and having her own just natural, sense um she's um she's a lot smarter than her dad um and, mm-hmm. and he's he comes to sort of rely on her but but yeah i mean just like you're saying that that makes her image of herself uh, a certain way uh, in in both both kind of good ways that she knows that she can um lead a country right um and and mm-hmm. also also in terms of like being valued but not being desired in the mm. way that like in the way that she desires psyche right uh, or or in the way that um you know even like the way that Taryn desires redival yeah there there's a there's there's still like a a, a kind of wound that's still there right mm-hmm. um that um that she still has but uh but yeah then then we get to the passage that that you read which is kind of just the the climax of the of the chapter right where um the fever gets really bad and psyche goes out there and um and lays her hands on the people who are sick and they think that maybe they recover um and even the fox is kind of like it's it's possible that she mm-hmm. has you know the special ability to heal which ties into this theme that um you know that you get in the inklings works um and you also get uh really highlighted um, later on, the idea that the health of the kingdom and the health of the ruler mm-hmm. are like intertwined, right? Um, that the priest puts his finger right on it, you know, in in, in a few chapters, but uh, actually in the next chapter, I think um, 
right now of the um the, you know the hands of the king are the hands of a healer sort of thing in right. uh, in return of the king right but uh but yeah this idea that because the monarch is in some way like spiritually the representative of his or her people um in uh in front of the gods or in front of god um uh, there's a there's a some some sort of like inner ability to save those people physically um which is obviously not the way americans think but there you go um it's uh, it's probably it's probably not yeah. really the way british people think anymore either um but uh but it's it's really interesting um, and i i wonder like i haven't looked into it really at all but i wonder what the precedent is for that if there are you know stories that are not just like anthropology right um uh, but but stories of uh kings and and monarchs uh sort of healing people right uh my only touchstones this is the um the poverty of my education uh are Arth- king arthur he returns but that's not a, a that's more of a sort of jesus coming again thing yeah um, and then everything biblical like think of i mean for for a christian it doesn't seem to come together in the biblical narrative until you have jesus no i think that's right um yeah and i i'm you know i should know you're the medievalist yeah i'm the medievalist but i'm (laughs) i'm kind of racking my brain and i can't think of any you know sort of instances of someone saying well the the test of the true king is whether or not they can heal right uh, I, mean, I mean did uh did emperor like uh did any of the holy roman emperors or any of the like saintly i mean uh king wenceslas right he, yeah um i'm sure he did i should know with him because he's a saint <laughs> and i know saint more about kings. saints than i do about kings but yeah sure i'm, I'm sure I'm sure they did, but that's that's got to do with them being um, a saint, though. That's yeah, not, that's not it, it is interesting king. to. Uh, well, I mean, but isn't it? Wouldn't wouldn't the best king be a saint? It may not be necessary for like the divine. Um, what's what's the term for God choosing the monarch of your country and them having the divine right to rule? Divine right, right? The divine right of kings. Uh, it is interesting, though, uh, to go back to psyche right after she goes in among the people she literally takes their fever on so where you have like aragorn healing people that that miracle of his hands bringing healing he doesn't he travails and sorrows for his people but he doesn't get sick psyche here the next day the fever is on her um and it's interesting that it both seems to purify her and draw her closer to her doom um in her wanderings with the fever she talked the most of her gold and amber castle on the ridge of the gray mountain it's like she can already see her heavenly home Uh, and then she was more beautiful uh when when her strength came back with a newer and a new and severer radiance and the fox is still comparing her you know terribly does she resemble an undying spirit like this her fever and her sacrifice here make her yet more glorious, which is also interesting that that path of obedience and sacrifice um, brings still more beauty to her. Yeah. And I love the, um, 
you know, the um, the reference to the Trojan War, right, where the fox says, um, mm-hmm. you know, one, once she's been purified by this this illness, right, and just looks more terribly beautiful, right? Right. When, when the fox says, no wonder if the Trojans and Achaeans suffer long woes for such a woman. Terribly does she resemble an undying spirit, right? Referencing the, the Trojan War and the face that launched a thousand ships, right? And, and, you know, so many people kind of saying, how could all this be over one girl? Right over over one kidnapped girl. There's got to be like Agamemnon must have had mm-hmm. his own motives, and you know uh, this can't just be to recover, um, you know, recover one woman. Um, you know, if she were Lewis, as beautiful as Psyche, you betcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Lewis kind of sh- kind of turns Oriol's life into a long mm-hmm. quest to recover. You know. Um, to, to recover this beauty, right? The, the mm-hmm. beauty of this undying spirit of this soul of, of psyche um, and, mm. um, and Oriol's knowledge that she, that she lacks whatever psyche is um, and, mm-hmm. and desires to possess it. Um, and it's kind of like her own personal Iliad um, of, you know, of, of trying to like, hold on to that beauty and trying to find it again, you know, except the beauty itself is this person that she loves most in the world. Yeah. Is it, is it the Iliad or is it the Odyssey? Like I, is it also a return? Yeah. It's more the Iliad. Yeah. I think, I think it's a return too. I mean, um, it, it ends a lot more happily than the Iliad does. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, I guess (laughs) you could just say, you could just say the Trojan war because the Iliad's really not about Helen at all. It's about Achilles being a jerk. (laughs) <laughs> but um so um, psyche becomes more beautiful um and this also becomes more dangerous for for her family and for gloom yeah yeah and redival um you know has has this other smart remark at the end right um uh, about this time, Redival became very pious and went often to the house of Unget to make offerings. The fox and I saw to it that she always had with her a trusty old slave who would let her get into no mischief. I thought she was praying for a husband. She wanted one badly since the king had in a manner chained her to the fox and me, and also that she was glad to be out of our sight for an hour as we were to be out of hers. Yet I warned her to speak to no one on the way. Oh, make your mind easy, sister, said Redival. It's not me they worship, you know. I'm not the goddess. The men are as likely to look at you as at me. And now they've seen Istra, right? <laughs> so um, this uh, combination of Redival realizing, oh, people really, you know, think that my sister, my younger sister that I'm jealous of is a goddess and going to uh, the priest uh, ends up sort of coming to a bad end here in chapter um, in chapter four, where um, we've got the sort of big confrontation, um, the beginning of a confrontation between between the priest and the king. But first, we have this sort of uprising, right? Um, even though they've sent Psyche out to be among the people and try to heal them. Here 
you know, to after Psyche has gone and and sort of touched the common people and healed the common people, the main thing they take they learn from that is, oh, well, I guess it does get a response when we surround the palace in a in a in a mob and cry out for food or or whatever else, right? So, so that's what they do, and they're very close to just kind of open rebellion. The king says, I've no more to give you. No more corn, right? Um, um, name of Ungut. Do you think I can make corn if the fields don't bear it? And why don't they? Said a voice from the back of the crowd. Where are your sons, king? Said another. Where's the prince? The king of Fars has 13 sons, said another. Baron king makes barren land, said a fourth. This time the king saw who had spoken and nodded to one of the bowmen who stood beside him. Before you'd wink. The arrow went through the speaker's throat and the mob took to its heels, but it was foolishly done. My father ought to have killed either none of them or nearly all. He was right enough, though, in saying we could give them no more doles. This was the second of a bad harvest, and there was little in the granary but our own seed corn. So, um, you know, they're not living that well um, either um, in in the palace. But but yeah, this this whole sense that the people have that because the king is barren of sons that that's tied to the health of the uh, land. And this actually, right. yeah, is very much based in uh, J.G. Fraser's uh, The Golden Bough, um, which was um, super influential on Lewis and really on everybody in Lewis's generation. It was written in uh, 1890, and it's an anthropological study of religion. And part of what Lewis is quoting um, when he's an atheist and he's saying like, well, you know, all religions have, you know, these stories of a dying God. I don't see what makes Christianity so great is he's, he's getting that from JG Fraser because the idea of this dying corn God is one of the main motifs in, in the golden bow. And also the idea of, mm. of the fact that, um, barrenness of a king is linked to the barrenness of a land that you don't have productive land without a productive king. And, uh, and this is tied also um, in medieval literature to, um, to the idea of the wasteland that um, when the uh, fisher king is wounded in his thigh um, and has no ability to um, generate offspring, his entire land is a waste and the only cure for it is the healing of the fisher king but um but you know fraser um and others you know kind of following fraser do this analysis of of this saying see it's tied to this basically like folk belief this tribal belief that the king as a representative of his people as a representative of his country before the gods that his you know ability to um procreate um has um is bound up in the ability in the land to to reproduce but yeah and i mean it's it's here obviously it's also all over uh this book and and um and oliver lewis in general um but he um he finds a way to sort of christianize it wait uh, how does he find a way to christianize it well by being a christian um <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean I mean, the whole, the whole book, uh, to me, I mean, I know, I know we talked about how, you know, it's not an allegory and it's not, um, but the interesting thing about it is that um, at this point, he's such a well-known, you know, Christian author that this is a journey 
of Oriol through the more repugnant aspects of traditional religion to knowing God, right? Um, that's the that's the reason for the. Um, even though he wanted to call it bareface, um, that's that's what till we have faces. You know, the the last right. p- thing that she says in the in the book really um, is about this is her this is her journey through this kind of you know what what would have been at least according to the Golden Bough like a very typical sort of um, ancient pagan um, barbarian religion, but um, seeing through that too. Uh, the true nature of God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, right. yeah. So it's not, sorry, just to be really clear. So it's not that there's some specifically Christian link between the barrenness of a king and the barrenness of a land. I mean, not that or... I know of. Um, okay. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, okay. But, um, but you know, I, I, I will say that they were interested in, matter and meaning right like right. uh the knitting back together the uh physical realities with sacramental what they mean. Of nature yeah, yeah. so I, I mean i i guess you know that can have a okay if, if you're trying to recover this sort of um ancient unity right between matter and spirit um there's potentially a dark side to that too where like you're gonna you're gonna get in trouble for being bad because of like physical things you can't you can't deal with but it's interesting that that just as the king can't like the king has no value mm-hmm. because he's unable to produce a son um, and it's not because of anything that's his fault right um, and in the same way at least in a traditional sense, Oriol seems to have no value as as a right. woman because of her um, because of her uh, her ugliness deformation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. it's and it's also something that's hateful to the god. You know, there's there's a point mm-hmm. skipping ahead where she volunteers to be the great sacrifice in Psyche's place, and and mm-hmm. they're kind of like, no, that's ridiculous. Like you're you you're you with your, with a face like that. Like I don't think so. That you don't give that to a god, um, right? And it's this—it's the same sort <laughs> yeah. of like being blamed for something that you can't—you have no control over. That's what humans do to each other. <laughs> but there's a sense here that it's also what gods do, um, and and mm-hmm. and it's and in some ways it has to do with the heart of the complaint of the book. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because right in this chapter is where we get to psyche going from being proclaimed as a goddess. Um, with beauty that she didn't create to being declared the accursed and for, for the blame to come on her. And the, I guess one of the really interesting things about this, this narrative is that um, the beauty and the curse, like the, the story is the curse real, right? Like is psyche marked out? Is it the, the jealousy of the gods? Um that that makes the mob turn that makes the priest uh in his hatred of the king and their family and everyone in the desperation of this famine right like why is there a famine on the land why why is everyone on the borders of their tiny little kingdom um ready to go to war and despising 
this pitiful little place. And there are some things where, you know, you could say the king is very much um, responsible, right? Like in in making poor allegiances, in uh, poor alliances, and in not being wise in war, in in being overly brutal, in um, like even as we saw with the mob when he shot that one guy who said something instead of quelling the crowd by shooting them all or just ignoring them, which would have done, which I think Orwell looking back would have done saying like that would have been smarter, right? There's, there's responsibility and, and there are some things within their control and yet it feels like everything is fated for them, right? Like, like they are like psyches, once in a thousand years beauty is it feels planned somehow by the gods. I don't know. Uh, it's that sort of um, a destiny or, or choice and free will is, is interesting here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think this is really sort of a classic um, Greek tragic setup mm-hmm. uh, that, if like you're... Turin Turin Bar, like oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, and and even though, I mean, I'd say with with um, Turin Turin Bar, um, if I'm remembering it right, he's in a crappy situation that seems to be a no-win sort of situation, and he's sort of destroyed by the malevolence of Morgoth and and. And, um, yeah, but he makes choices all along the way. Yeah, like his yeah. his name is um, like he is cursed, and and they they say all these things about him, right? And yeah, um, you, you're going to be mastered by fate. And he says, "No, I'm going to make I'm going to master my fate." Right. And then tries to change his name. Like I will be the one who chooses. And in every choice, he's very willful and he, he goes out and he actually fulfills it's, it's like, like Oedipus, right? Like by going out and trying to, by his parents doing what they did by him trying to escape every, every prophecy ends up being fulfilled. Yeah. Tragically. And, and it just feels like, Oh golly, that didn't have to happen. And it, but it it did. Um, but it did because you chose. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was a curse on you. So, yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the thing, right? Um, did you choose that way because there was a curse on you or did your choices make the curse worse right. um, because you're just like kind of stupid in addition to being cursed, right? Um, like, uh, <laughs> you know, um, or, or Here's this random or dude. I'm just going to kill um, him. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, and and I think I think it even goes to um, the Greeks can even be a little bit um, Calvinistic, uh, fatalistic, mm. um, in in that like, okay, so you choose to shoot one guy in this mob that's surrounding you, which was actually the worst possible move that you could make. Do you really think you made the worst choice possible on your own or was it Mm. some God who was against you in the first place, putting that idea in your head to make the worst possible choice. Right. Um, And, and, and it even, you know, it it can get to the point where, where it's just kind of like your, if your ability to reason comes from the gods in the first place, if it is like a, a sort of divine emanation, 
um, then your lack of reason in a moment also um, can be blamed on the gods, like just kind of deciding they don't like you so much anymore. Attributed I, to the gods, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, they can blame you for stuff, right? Um, which is, which is, uh, you know, which is which is a, a tough a, a tough place to be in. Um, but what they're blaming for you, what they're blaming you for, obviously, is stuff that you don't feel like you had any control over um so yeah it's this it's this odd sort of Mm. cyclical thing yeah Uh, but it seems to be it seems like you know like like she says i think somewhere the noose is tightening right um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, you've got uh um psyche coming back from wandering around in the in the city where she where she has been she had been um visiting i think um the woman that had nursed her as a child and visiting their family and she asks oriel why do they call me the accursed um and oriel says who has dared we'll have his tongue torn out where have you been and and she thought she could heal um the uh the, the woman who had nursed her uh when she when she leaves uh people are treating her like she is now the plague Right. Um, they're they're treating her like they're, right. they're calling her the accursed, the accursed. She made herself a goddess. Right. Um, when uh, um, she had been, you know, treated before she like is a goddess. the curse itself. Yeah. 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 What did I do to them? Do them and blessed them and took their disease upon And these are their thanks. Um. And I, I love that. Like that's where um, Orwell's bitterness in seeing what's happened. And also like this, this is what happens to a Christ figure too. I mean, really like it's not the, mm-hmm. the triumph of an Aragorn at the end. It's like, they're going to stone you after you heal them and bless them and take their filth upon yourself. Um, yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. In this context. Yeah. It's the, it's the role of the scapegoat, right. Um, yeah. that, um, you know, and I think, I think this is very much a uh, Fraser thing as well that, that you, um, you know, and, and also other like, um, uh, Rene Girard, who's a French, uh, theologian, mm. yeah. um, who, who came later, uh, much later, um, even I think then, then this book was written, uh, I think he's like seventies. Um, but, um, you know, he um, kind of building on a lot of this anthropological work, um, you know, would would say that, yeah, you you take the best um, and you um, essentially put the sins of all the people on it. Um, and, um, and and then that thing is now sin. Right. Or that person is now the sin and it mm-hmm. must be killed or it must be sent. It is now the other. Right. Um, and, and must be mm-hmm. destroyed for the health of the community. Right. Um, in, in order to uh, reaffirm these social bonds um, that had been uh, fraying um, and that a, that a sacrifice is necessary and the sacrifice in Fraser's work anyway, um, you know, would have been someone of divine blood. Right. And, and someone, mm-hmm. someone who, who, who is the best, um, like, like the priest says. So her father, you know, they, they don't know when the world they're going to do. Then the lions come. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just before that, if we can go back, sorry. Yeah. Um, just an interesting, like, like sister relationship thing. Um, when 
Orwell is, is asking Psyche what, what happened and, and what, what she did. Um, she's saying she had gone uh, very foolishly, I thought, into the city without a word um, and, and gone to touch the nurse. Uh, for they all said my hands cured it. And who knows, it might be. I felt as if they did. I told her she had done very wrong. And it was then that I fully perceived how much older she had grown since her sickness. For she neither accepted the rebuke like a child, nor defended herself like a child, but looked at me with a grave quietness, almost as if she were older than I. It gave me a pang at the heart. Um. And I, I, I love that distance growing now between Orwell and Psyche, who had been so, so close. And now that, like, that Psyche has had this experience, this um, almost a glorification and also a great suffering um, that's drawing her nearer to her fate um, and her future home. Right. Uh, the distance is growing with Orwell, who is as she was. And Orwell is no longer, also no longer in that older sister posture of, I, I tell you, I judge you. And I tell you when you're being foolish and mm-hmm. when you're doing wrong. Um, but Psyche is not receiving it like that. She's looking at her and she's just no longer in need of that instruction and that that not needing Orwell is giving Orwell the pang, right? Like yeah. that beginning of that, um, that change that so threatens affection. Yeah. And, um, you know, in some ways she's been Psyche's mother um, this entire mm-hmm. time. And suddenly mm-hmm. Psyche is um, not in need of a mother uh, anymore. Right. Um, and, and that's, that's heartbreaking. Um and then she uh, she also has this moment of responding uh, when um, Orwell gets so angry at, at finding out that the people are calling her the accursed and, and stoning her. <laughs> and she, Psyche says, you know, I, I'm tired. I want my supper. Don't be angry. You look just like our father when you say those things. And that that aches and the the it's not just the the ache we get having it written here but we have a reflected echo of Orwell the narrator looking back um though the words you look just like our father and from her had hurt me with a wound that sometimes aches still I let go my anger and yielded um and I even that narrative turn of more of that shifting dynamic of Orwell no longer being the the mother figure, but morphing into their tyrannical father who is ruled by his anger and his passions um, and who is a ruler, but not a wise one is very interesting here. Yeah. I think, I think there's something in this, um, you know, we, we learn spoiler alert, everyone. I'm sorry. Um, we learn at the very end that, um, Oriol had actually been a really, really good queen. Like this was, this was Gloam's golden age. Right. Um, and I wonder if that's not partly because the thing that we love the most is the thing that we, are completely incompetent at 
loving correctly um, a lot of times um, and in and, and that um, her father, obviously the most important thing to him was um, mm. was his kingship. Right. right. And, and be, and, and he did it horribly. Um, like he, he, he was probably a good warrior in a lot of ways, but um, the thing he was most concerned about is, um, you know, I'm not doing what a king's supposed to do and providing yeah. an heir. Um, I'm, you know, uh, people don't like me the way that, you know, they, and, and, and it's, and it's, you know, a, it, it causes him to make foolish choices because he has given his heart to it. Um, whereas with mm-hmm. Oriol, she's already given her heart to psyche. You know, this, this is the thing that she loves more than, anyone the person that she loves more than anyone um she can be temperate when it comes to ruling her kingdom uh because that's not what she most desires but she can't be temperate when it comes to loving her sister uh, because that's the person that she most desires and needs um and with a kind Mm -hmm. of need love um uh so i wonder if that's yeah is it is it desire or is it passion? Right. Because the, the King lacks any, any temperance, as you said, um, where Orwell can be very, she has lots of prudence and temperance and, and shows all the, the virtues in, as a ruler, um, but not with the love of her sister, because is it because, maybe that's an overwhelming passion. So more of like um, thinking about uh, Dante and the, the circle of lust and how they're, they're all tossed about by their, their passion still. Right. Because they, it's, it's not necessarily the, the acts of passion. It's that they have been over their reason has been overthrown and they are thrown around by the wind of passion. Right. Or is that yeah. desire? Like what, what is desire? Yeah. I should be a good enough medievalist that I should be able to give you some sort of Aristotelian um, <laughs> definition of what desire is, but it's, it's, it's getting away from me. Um, yeah. Uh, I think you too has some good definitions of what desire is. If you ever want to <laughs> check out the song desire, um, I believe there's something with like a needle and a spoon and a counter with a shotgun and all this other stuff. But uh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, but, but yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, we're, I, I we're mean, far afield, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so what, you know, what the ancients and the medievals, you know, and, and, and a lot of other sort of ancient wisdom, you know, as, as well would say, um, is that desire is kind of like internal weather. Um, and it's, it comes to you from, uh, and I, I don't, I don't think that this is, um, exactly reflected here but i I think you know when when you get when you get to dante it's um you were ruled by essentially the promptings of the body rather than the promptings of the soul um and the um Mm -hmm. and the these desires that you had that came um uh, from your uh, from your body, from your humors, right? From all these external factors that 
who are not the part of you that connects most closely to God, uh, you know, these you allowed to rule you rather than the part of you that makes you most human, which is your reason. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Therefore they continue to rule the the people who were, you know, mastered by their appetites um, in, in life. Um, I don't know that that's what this is. um, Right. Because I'm wondering if if it's more to that desire of, possession and ruling over because it's not it's not just that Orwell loves psyche and she does love her but she loves her with that like i i keep coming back to that passage from from last time like i i wanted her to be a slave so i could free her right like i wanted basically to have control over her destiny and to yeah. um to be everything to her and yeah. and the king he he wants to rule Gloom, and he he thinks he has a right because he's the king to to demand things of its people and for for them to be happy with what little he can do because um, he's trying. Um, yeah, but he's in control, uh, and it's up to him if he wants to stab random people who are serving in his court and um, when he's angry or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder if it's that possessing uh, that tyrannical impulse in extreme, that possessive love. What I love about this is that um, uh, Lewis does such an excellent job of, uh, of showing how that which is best in us, you know, also is that which is worst in us, right? That, um, mm. that the thing that defined Oriol's life, the thing even that was Oriol's icon of mm. the real divine nature, right? The, the place where she saw God most clearly was in her, um, was in her half-sister. Um, and, and so way that her half sister was and the most the noblest emotions that she felt was her were were her devotion um to um you know to to the sister of hers but that thing that the means through which we experience god or 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 the divine um it's like fairly impossible for that not to be an idol as well that blocks us from coming into the divine um, that from, from coming into um, uh, full knowledge of, of, of God. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's such a difficult human dilemma of, um, you know, she, she ends up, you know, hating the gods because they, um, they take away from her, that person who was most who who was the essence of of what life was about uh, for mm-hmm. for her, um, but um, yeah. And meanwhile, the king, of course, is really um, also worried. Um, he would, you know, abuse his counselors in the in the in the in the pillar room, right? Um, Messengers and letters from the neighboring kings were coming in every day, demanding impossible things and contrary things, dragging up old quarrels or claiming old promises. They knew how things were in gloom, and they clustered round us like flies and crows round a dying sheep. 
my father would pass in and out of his rages a dozen times in one morning. When he was in them, he would slap the fox about the face and pull me by the ears of the hair. And then between the fits, the tears would stand in his eyes. He would speak to us more like a child imploring help than a king asking counsel. Trapped, he would say, no way out. They will kill me by inches. What have I done that all these miseries should fall upon me? I've been a God-fearing man all my life. Um, <laughs> which is which is a statement we, we discussed, you know, last time. Yeah, his his just kind of pitifulness and then the to make mm-hmm. matters even worse the priest of Ungit gets better and doesn't you know his his sickness doesn't uh doesn't kill him um and uh he he comes to the palace and brings the temple guards right um and mm-hmm. uh we've got mm-hmm. uh we've got this kind of face off between the priest and the king and the smell the smell of old age and the smell of the oils and essences they put on those girls and the unget smell filled the room. It became very holy. I love that. Um, uh, when the priest is finally there uh, to meet with the king. Um, again, with, with smell being linked with holiness and darkness and mystery and horror. Um, well, that's two chapters, um, (laughs) and an hour and a half. Uh, so that's pretty good for us. Um, I'd like to ask you one question before we, um, before we sign off, which is if you were going to make a, you know, there have been tragically too few film adaptations of C.S. Lewis's works, um, and, uh, (laughs) In, or or any of the Inklings works in uh, mm-hmm. you know the past fifty years or you know uh, I mean more in the last thirty than 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 the decades before but um, if you're going to make a film of Till We Have Faces how would you go about it who would you cast what would the soundtrack sound like um, what what would uh, would it would it be a um, an animated film would it be um, oh, an anime uh, version, or, or not? Maybe not anime. Oh, not um, anime. Who's the please. Japanese guy? Oh, no, who's, who's the Japanese guy? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He could pull it off, uh, but no, um, not like a terrible. What was the animated Hobbit that was really bad from the seventies? Oh, you mean the animated Hobbit that was really good from the seventies? Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> The Rankin Bass <laughs> Hobbit, which is the best adaptation of the Hobbit that has ever been put on the screen. Oh, um, okay. Which is, uh, yeah, uh, which is not saying much, um, but uh, <laughs> but even so, um, yeah. yeah, probably don't want to get Rankin Bass on this one. You know, they also did Thundercats. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, so. Maybe Lars von Trier directing. Oh. Um, Give me the name of some films by him. Uh, oh, what was the one with Kirsten Dunst and like the moon and the, her twin sister that was really weird? Like he's in a lot of weird ones. Um, uh, there's one with bells in Scotland, and and I'm uh, like I, I can't give you title. I'm I'm really bad with titles. Um, and one with Nicole Kidman as a. They're all just kind of creepy. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna look and, it up. Yeah, and kind of otherworldly, but in like a a very unsettling way, which I I think you would need to have for this, like yes. to get that that unget holiness, right? But also, there are moments of beauty, and especially with with the women, um, where I think he would treat that like the suffering. Um, it's almost like a, a Via Dolorosa when Psyche mm. is walking along, touching the people with the fever. Mm. Um, and I, I think he would, I'd, I'd be interested for a, a Lars von Trier treatment of that. I, I see various blonde actresses in my head, but I don't really, there's no, there's no one who's like, you're beautiful enough to be Psyche. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What about you? That's really hard, too, because you'd have to do something. Mm-hmm. And I don't trust Hollywood to be able to get beauty correctly. Like, I, I just. Well, I, just... I mean, uh, I trust the directors more than I like. Yeah. You get it with. Um, oh, who's the who's the dude everyone likes? Um, Terrence Malick. Uh-huh. Uh, does does like Jessica Chastain in um, Tree of Life was. Mm-hmm. luminous and I, yeah. I don't mean that in the like the makeup way but just he really made her beautiful in those shots uh, yeah she is beautiful but it's the way he captures and frames it is yeah so yeah I would want it to be that kind of beauty instead of yeah. the like in you know Helen of Troy in the movie Troy or oh my god know, yes that was like, that's what I was thinking Diane Kruger and how bad that was yes yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think director wise, um, and this probably some people are going to roll their eyes, um, but I'll explain why. Um, I think Mel Gibson. Um, could, Whoa. Okay. That is, that off. is not something I would expect from you. Sorry. Um, I shouted into the microphone. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. And the reason I say that um, is a, he'd probably be more willing to than a lot of directors. Um, B, he has a genius for um, moments um, and especially mm. like very moving sort of um, sort of moments and pictures and almost sort of like portraits. Uh, he likes his gore a little too much, um, but I think, I think he can, you know, um, find his way past that. Uh, and there, there are some moments that are, you know, probably bloody enough for him Uh, and also his his penchant for it would be super fun to just have the whole thing in in, uh in an ancient language um and uh yeah you know just sort of like uh um you know he's he's he was great yeah yeah he was uh, apocalypto you know passion uh he he was great at um reconstructing that he's also great at like Hamlet? creepy creepy holiness thing um he can he can do really well <laughs> although he does sign up sort of uh mm. um you know verge on uh being too sensationalistic with it um but um but yeah that's that's the that's what that's what jumped to my macabre. mind mm. probably on reflection i could think of someone better for it um no, I like that. I, I, I think it's also like a, it's, I think you are the, like, I wouldn't expect you to pick Mel Gibson for that. 
I don't I wouldn't have I think that's a yeah a slightly off kilter thing. think final final question uh, down this avenue and then we'll ask our um you know our many listeners to chime in um <laughs> and, and tell us how they would do this um uh, how can they chime in chris oh they can chime in by going to uh inklings variety hour at gmail.com i believe um <laughs> uh yeah so write uh, to us we check love the you. show notes and make sure All i'm five right of you but uh yeah please do please do write to us you five um <laughs> and uh um but who who do you think who do you think would be a good uh casting choice for Oriol? i kind of think we should never see your face so i want to cast her based on voice because I, I really have no idea what she looks like and she's veiled throughout so much of this yeah um I'll have to think. Yeah. That'd be that'd be so uh, dang hard to never see her face. But yeah, you're right. But I think like I, I think it'd be better not to. If if I were if I were advising Mel or Lars, <laughs> I would say don't show her face. Maybe they could <laughs> maybe they could team direct. Uh, <laughs> sure that would work really well. Um, oh my gosh. Amazing. Uh, who who yeah. do you think? I don't know enough. I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, movies that I've like. It's a, it's such a it's such a visual, it's such a visual book. But the interesting thing is, you never find out what the deformity is that you know mm-hmm. that that she has. And I think Lewis is right to keep it vague, right? And also, right. also right. You know, even in the moment where like. Yeah, well, we'll get to that moment, but um, but yeah. but yeah, like you never do find out exactly what is up with Oriole's face. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would, if you were going to show her face, I'd go with someone who has has not really been casted cast who who has an actual physical facial deformity, mm-hmm. um, uh, but but who's a good actress. Um, but but yeah, I mean the the tough thing would be getting her at you know as a child and um, uh, and adolescent and and everything else. Um, yeah, um, I, I think the yeah. narrator's voice, like I I would imagine her still reading much of this, right? Because yeah. so much of it comes through the the reflection and her her examination of her own life. Um, as she, she rails against the gods and, and makes this record of her, of her case against them. Right. Oh, someone with a a deeper voice and a strong presence, but not necessarily captivating. Um, you know, who, who just came was, um, do you remember Juliana Margulies? Um, I don't. She was like the the main nurse on ER for a long time. Uh, this is how old I am. My references date to '90s shows. Um, yeah, mine do too. And then she did, she did other things as well. Um, but she has a she has a good voice. Um, she's very. Pre- I think she's very pretty. Um, but 
if you didn't see her face, that wouldn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, uh, that'd be so hard though, because in film, I mean, is it, I mean, we, there are films with narrators that you don't see or don't see until the very end or. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you could veil her. I mean, but, she would be veiled through a lot of the action. Yeah. This depends so completely though on Oriol's emotional, f- emotional state. And the face is, um, mm. you know, the the way that people through film, you know, communicate. I mean, you could do it through voice, but it's it's just, yeah, it's not going to hit you as as hard if you don't have, um, yeah, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, eyes mm. at least, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, at okay. any rate, well, listeners, uh, please. Give us better casting choices. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who you would pick? Tell us. Tell us what um, mm-hmm. we should do. And, and Mel, yeah. if you're out there, you know, <laughs> just uh, you know, get started on this movie. Um, what should we be reading for next time, Chris? For next time, read more of Till We Have Faces, chapters five through. We'll be ambitious, and we'll say we'll get, we'll get all the way to chapter eight um last time yeah yeah until next time um do remember that baron king makes baron land And the mob will learn if you open the door once. That's right. Uh, You feel like you're being a good person, but they either shoot them all or keep the door shut. That's right. That's right. Timeless lessons here on Friday hour. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, y'all. Bye. full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.